Ugh, another pointless video call where nothing gets done. I think you're on mute, David. Uh, oh, uh, sorry. What did I miss? IT just approved Miro for the whole company. Miro? That's the... Online whiteboard. For team collaboration. We can make these long video meetings so much shorter with Miro boards. We can share ideas, feedback, and updates on them whenever. Actually see what we're talking about. It's all online. Miro will make our flexible work setup so much easier. With one virtual space for our brainstorms, projects, presentations. Oh, that sounds kind of amazing. So I don't need to wake up for 6 a.m. calls with the London office anymore. Now you're getting it. Don't let time zones get in the way of your team working well together. See why 99% of the Fortune 100 trust Miro to get good work done from anywhere. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. Hello, and thanks for joining us on the Boys in the Band podcast. I'm Richie Gallagher. And I'm Peter Smith, and we're bringing you a midweek special podcast today with Vincent, Vincent, and the villain singer, Mark Ogus. This ties in nicely with the Rumble Strip show that we released on Saturday. Yeah, it does. And if you listen to that one, you'll have heard Charlie Waller of the Rumble Strips talk about his time in the band Vincent, Vincent and the Villains and his slightly messy departure from that band. And we've spoken to Mark to hear his side of the story. If I'm being honest, I probably shouldn't have really put him in that position in the first place. We always knew it was going to come to that head. But I think what it was, was we just we loved being around each other. We felt cooler around each other. And we felt like more indestructible around each other. And I think neither of us wanted that to win, but eventually it had to. So. They're good friends again now, we should report. But Mark ended up writing Johnny Two Bands. Um, a song about Charlie when Charlie wasn't sure about whether to stick with the villains or the rumble strips and playing that song on top of the pops it didn't sound quite like it was uh, how he dreamt it Rich yeah not exactly yeah fair to say there was a fair bit of uh, disillusionment by that point but Mark tells us all about the band's rise and why things didn't quite play out as they'd hoped Uh, but we also hear an interesting chat about his new career it's a very different second career that he's got he's running Monty's Deli like most food establishments they've been hit Pretty hard by the coronavirus pandemic, with their outlets closed, they're currently doing delivery. So head over to montes-deli.com to try out their food. Yeah, it sounds really good. We were salivating as he talked through the different sandwiches they do. Um, so as Pete says, do check them out. Um, but have a listen to the podcast. Really interesting guy, really interesting story. Um, so have a listen and do check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and do rate and review the podcast too. Enjoy. This week on the Boys in the Band podcast, we're very pleased to be joined by Mark Ogus, who you all know better as Vincent Vincent from Vincent Vincent and the Villains. Mark, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very good. Very good. We're just talking off air. Um, It's been a while since you've been speaking about this band, isn't it? Yes, it certainly has. I think the last gig was summer 2008. And yeah, I haven't really looked back since <laughs> <laughs> well uh, well thanks for coming on to talk about it mark we're you know we're really looking forward to talk, uh, chatting to you about about the band and the the noughties indie scene and and the interesting career path you've taken since um but first we always start our podcast with the sound checks so it's just three quick questions to get us warmed up so first of all uh, whereabouts are you joining us from tonight uh from my house in north london i'm sitting uh, in the window staring at a 
computer that isn't quite working, but I can hear you, which is great. <laughs> great stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's what's going on now. <laughs> yeah, we've got better of technology in the end, didn't we, tonight? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> For now. Um, Mark, second question of the sound check. Um, what music are you into at the moment? What bands um, are uh, floating your boat at the moment? Who are you listening to? Um, well, it's a very rare occurrence that I listen to new bands, I'm afraid. Um, I've been listening to a lot of jazz. And um, at the moment, I really love this pianist called Winton Kelly, who um, he was uh, an amazing piano player, played with Miles Davis and Coltrane and all the greats, but also had his own trio. And um, I really love listening to that in the mornings when I come down bleary-eyed at about 6.30 in the morning with my daughter to make her breakfast. That's the first thing that happens before even coffee gets made is um, I usually put on Winston Kelly trio and that helps me through the morning. Now, other than that, I'm kind of listening to a lot of um, Van Morrison. I recently got back into an album piece called St. Dominic's Preview, which um, it has the famous single uh, Jackie Wilson says on it, but um, it's also got some amazing, amazing other songs on it that are really worth listening to. So off the top of my head, yeah, that's mainly. And then I guess the most... The, the most contemporary band <laughs> that I could name that I, I do really like is Parquet Courts, and I really love their music. Yeah. Great, yeah. So they came up in another chat we had with as well. It did, it did. Yeah. I was thinking it's Harmar Superstar listening to yeah, Parquet really Courts, like which uh, yeah. interesting segue from him to, uh, to you, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Can I so ask you about... a question? Or is this, oh, sorry, we're in the quick fire round, aren't we? <laughs> no, that's all right. Go <laughs> right ahead, Mark. Jump on in. <laughs> I'm just really interested in why you guys are doing this. Like, what, what, what is this about for you guys? Because like, I suppose music is, especially, I, I felt like even at the time, music was so fast moving and the scene was so uh, temporal that a lot of those bands obviously have been in, in, the, in the wilderness since. And, and even, you know, bands that came and went since are also kind of forgotten about. So I, I just wonder what it is that makes you interested in this particular period of time. Yeah, 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 I think it's just, um, you know, for us personally, it was it was the music of, of those sort of key years in our life, of, you know, the late teens, early 20s, when we were out at gigs all the time. And it just felt right. like such a vibrant scene to be a part of, you know, as fans. And, and there's so many bands around at that time that we absolutely loved and so many good gigs to go to. And, uh, you know, we sort of, our friendship was sort of born out, out of that scene. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, we were always, you know, we carried on going to see bands and, you know, getting a little bit uh, old about it and saying, oh, it's not like the good old days. And, and you know, what about this? Remember this band and that band? And I'm like, oh, I wonder what happened to those, what they're doing. And, and it kind of sort of born out of that, really, just sort of trying to look back on what we see as a real vibrant, thriving scene of great bands. That's nice. yes. I think there's also, you know, you get to a point where, you know, we were, we were both born in the mid 80s and you, you grew up and you hear how brilliant the 60s were and the 70s were for music and as you get older the 80s were fantastic everyone's getting nostalgic about that and recently there's been a lot of nostalgia about the 90s isn't there and that sort of brit pop scene and rightly so you know me and really big fans of likes of oasis and, and the big fans of that era but um it feels worryingly it feels like we've got to a point now where those sort of those mid noughties are almost far enough back now to get a bit nostalgic and uh get a bit sentimental yes. about those days yeah okay great yeah, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, well, last question in our sound check was going to be uh, the, the last gig you went to. Can you remember oh. what last gig you went to was, Mark? No, I, don't, I, I mean, um, 
uh, I suppose something that maybe will make me a bit different from a lot of the other people that you interview is like, I don't, I didn't really go to many gigs. I mean, I've been to, I've been to see people like Jonathan Richmond uh, once in a, like ages and ages and ages ago in the late nineties, I saw Dylan play at the little Docklands arena and, you know, dotted gigs like that, but I, I never really, um, my, my interest in music was more around like, I, I used to, go to record shops and just buy records buying records and records and records just as many as i could carry back and listen and all but i was i was always more interested in that and the records and the sound quality and, and the songwriting the live performance watching live performances for me i've never really gotten such a big kick out of it and it's not it's not really something that i do i'm a bit embarrassed to say <laughs> no that's interesting because um well, we'll speak later in the show about your approach to live shows with Vince, with the band, Vince and the yeah. Films, because um, I know you're quite considered about what the band should look like and um, sort of the presentation of the band on stage. So it'd be interesting to pick your brains about how you how you came around to that. that sort of yeah, like I said, I've been, I've been looking forward to talking all things Vincent and the Villains. It's been a long time. <laughs> cool. Cool. Well, let's do it then, Mark. So yeah, recently we had Charlie Waller on the podcast talking about the Rumble Strips, and he was also your band for a while but take us back to the beginning then about how vincent vincent the villains came about and how you ended up with perhaps my favorite band name from that era as well <laughs> <laughs> um that's nice of you to say well i guess um originally probably when i was sort of 16 17 coming to the end of my time at school i would just listen to records all the time my dad's record collection old rock and roll 45s and and lps and um that sort of really spurred my interest in the whole rock and roll mythology and imagery and everything and um uh, i went to after i finished school i went to art school i went to I did a foundation at chelsea and then eventually i did my degree at chelsea college of art and um all of my work was about music and musicians and the kind of idea of the mask and performing creating your own kind of persona and and while I was at Chelsea um, there was a young man there who I uh, really admired called Charlie Waller who was in my year and was performing with his band at the time called the Action Heroes and we'd go and see them play and I just was blown away by Charlie's kind of um, his voice and, and uh, his performance style and you know he was just great to watch because um, I guess people who know Charlie know that when he comes on stage, it's like he comes alive in this whole different way. And I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> and it was, it wasn't really, I'd always kind of, you know, maybe daydreamed about the idea of performing, but when I saw Charlie doing it and we become friends, I was like, I can do that. I want to do that. You know, it was very inspiring. And when I left college, um, one of my other friends from college, uh, Neil, we had plenty of, drinks and we get pissed and talk about you know if we were going to do a band what would we do and it was around that time that very early noughties period where it was um the strokes were you know massive and there was this whole garage scene coming over from the us and and people were really interested in that sort of um late 70s kind of new york scene and and um music that derived from the sort of the kind of post rock and roll, where do we go next? And music's gone a bit boring and that sort of punky sort of, let's just have a go kind of thing. And so me and this guy, Neil would rehearse in his flat in Whitechapel. We had a little 
flat in Whitechapel above this motor spares shop. And his flatmate was um, uh, this guy called Alex Cox, who um, was like a, um, I mean, he was, he was actually also studying art at St. Martin's, but he, he was a, a casual drummer. I describe him as like um, a more professional drinker than he was drummer, but he was just this wonderful guy who was like a real party guy, great personality. And we chatted to him after a few of our like little drunken meetings, like, you know, if we do this band, would you be up for it? And he was like, yeah, he didn't even really think about it. <laughs> and later on, you realize that these decisions kind of ruin people's lives for a few years. <laughs> at the time, it's so exciting and everyone gets swept away in it. And so we became the Vincents and I was Vincent Vincent. And it was, I just wanted to be, I wasn't ready to be, Mark Ogus from Hatch End Suburbia, you know, wanted to be something different and weird. And I was really interested in, you know, 50s rock and roll, but not just, I mean, I was, I've always been a massive Dylan head and, you know, Dylan changed his name from Zimmerman to Dylan. And um, we started doing some gigs and we started picking up a little bit of interest and traction. And then um, around this time, I was living in this um, total hovel in Bethnal Green. <laughs> uh, where I found this, I found this flat in Loot's newspaper. So a lot of your listeners probably will be too young to even remember Loot. But before the internet, there was this kind of free paper, and it would be a different colour every day, and it would have you know all, all the flats to let that were available. And you sometimes find a bargain if you picked one up early enough in the morning. We found this flat in Bethnal Green that was above the guy who was the landlord. Uh, he smoked salmon for a living and he had this salmon smoking cellar under the flat. And the reason why the rent was so cheap is because plumes of fishy smoke would come <laughs> through the floor every Thursday evening at about 6 p.m. And, you know, if you lived there, you stank of smoked fish. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, I was living there for a little while with a mate from college and I knew that Charlie was looking for a place to live and we had a chat and I said, this place stinks of fish, but it's cheap. Do you fancy it? And he was like, yeah, <laughs> on it. So he moved in and, you know, we were just, we became like brothers. Um, we were always going out together, getting into trouble together, playing music all the time, writing songs for each other. We even had our own little sort of kind of, kind of double act uh, that we would force on people in this pub, the Ten Bells. I used to work there and we would just jump on people's tables and, and sing songs in their faces when they really didn't want to be saying <laughs> when we were supposed to be DJing. And we created this really great um, bond. And I said, you know, it would be great if you would join the band. And uh, he was already playing with the Rumble Strips at that time, but they weren't really, you know, nothing was really happening for them. And he joined the band and immediately we just kind of kicked off into another level. Um, we got a little sort of deal to do a single with this tiny indie label called Smoking Gun. And I had written this song on my own and, and Charlie had written this song, um, B-Side Baby, inspired by one of his heroes, Adamant. And um, we, we went and recorded it and released it pretty soon after, I think March 2004 that came out. And John Kennedy found it in Rough Trade in Notting Hill and just started playing it loads and loads and loads. And it, I remember that clearly as one of the most exciting times of my life. I would be round at um, Phil, my, one of my best friends and also our, our manager. He was unlucky enough to be made our manager because he was one of my best friends. And um, I'd go around to his house and we'd listen to it live on the radio. Just, you know, we would just be so excited. Or, or I'd go around to my... Um, 
uh, girlfriends who is still my my partner all these years later and, and listen to it on her stereo and it was just it was I remember that as a very precious exciting wonderful moment um anyway I'm prattling on and on so I don't really know where to go from here maybe <laughs> maybe you can focus my sort of my <laughs> you're gonna have a lot of things to do with this conversation well that's great to, to hear so um so obviously you you were based over sort of in East London at that, that time so was there, was there much of a music scene at that time that you were sort of involved in? I could describe it as nascent. I mean, when, when I moved there, I, had, I would carry my guitar around everywhere. And so would Charlie. We'd be playing all the time. And you wouldn't really see that many, um, you know, around sort of what would it be, like 2002. You wouldn't really see that many. And then I remember by the time I left Bethnal Green, it was like every other person on the street had, had a, a guitar on the back. So, so something definitely happened, and that definitely became a, a hub for musicians. Yeah. And we used to live in this flat, the, the fishy one I was telling you about. It was directly opposite a place called the Pleasure Unit, which I think later became the star of Bethnal Green or whatever. And it was run by this, this guy um, called, he called himself Nigerian Nick, really big guy. And uh, he sort of took a shine to us and used to put us on there quite regularly. I remember there was other clubs like Catch 22, we used to put on nights. So yeah, that was the kind of nascent period and then it kind of expanded. Yeah, and obviously your, your, your band could, could ride the wave a little bit there, but you know, within a year of forming, you'd put out On Your Own and then Blue Boy as singles. Um, the band was gathering quite a bit of momentum quite quickly, weren't they, in the early days? Yeah, definitely. Um, John Kennedy was like a huge supporter. Zane Lowe started playing On My Own all the time and like, declaring it the next big thing. Did you have any and, contact with um, the likes of Zane or John, or was it just that you just appeared in their playlists? No, John, uh, John contacted us loads, actually, and he would, he would put us on nights. And, I mean, I, I think Zane may have, like, he was more corporate, you know, Radio 1. I mean, I hate Radio 1 now as much as I did then. Um, but his show was something you wanted to be on when you were in a band. Uh, but it was much more corporate. So, like, someone from his show would email our manager and say, oh, Zane loves the single. But I also think they were listening to John Kennedy's show. <laughs> and trying to pitch stuff off there, you know. Um, but, and he was like, he was the more underground XFM uh, guy who was sort of finding all the things first. And yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, that and getting played on his show lots really changed things for us. The enemy started getting interested and, and uh, we were getting offered more gigs and better, better things. And then just to jump back to the story of Charlie then, so you talked about how the bond that you guys developed, so obviously writing and playing performing was, it sounded like a, a lot of fun, but tell us about how him coming to leave the band came about and how, what that meant for the band moving on from there. Um, well, you know, he, things got very uncomfortable when I think we, we had a deal on the table um, from EMI. And we had a publishing deal on the table from Chrysalis. So there was a lot of money being offered our way. And, and none, of, none of those people were interested in him or his other, in, in him pursuing his other band. They sort of knew about it. They knew about them. They'd seen them. They, they weren't really, they want, they said, you know, if you're going to sign this deal, then you have to be, Concentrating, you know, which is, you know, obviously understandable. But then for Char from Charlie's position, this is the band with like, 
you know, some of his closest friends from his hometown. And so, uh, and, and also musically, they were much more accomplished than us. Like, you know, Neil, bless him, he was a lovely guy, but he was a very, very mediocre to poor bass player. <laughs> I remember one gig that we had in, in Coco where, you know, we, we had this very simple song, Seven Inch Record, where he was just playing a repeated riff over and over. And he did the whole song in, the, in a totally different key up the neck of the bass. <laughs> And when the show finished, he did this whole weird sort of mind, like, oh, oh my God, my bass is up tune. Oh, hold on a minute. And we all knew that that was, you know, bullshit. And Charlie was livid. And, and I think, um, I mean, uh, that wasn't the reason why he left the band, but I think things got very, very uncomfortable very quickly after that. When, once the kind of fun sort of subsided and money was on the table and futures were at risk and stuff, and, and Charlie became much more withdrawn, I felt like, um, we'd started to kind of resent each other. I think he was, he's, he was always used to being the front man of his band. You know, that's how I first saw him. And that's what brought me to, you know, that's what made me admire him in the first place. And we would look at photographs together and he, he would say, Oh, I like this one. And I'd say, Oh, I like that one. And, you know, we'd be at loggerheads because he liked the one where he was at the front. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I, don't know, I mean, when I, when I think back, it's so pathetic, you know, these kind of boys egos, because that's what it was all about. Um, but nonetheless, things got very uncomfortable and eventually, uh, you know, it all came to a head after one gig. He said, you know, that he had to leave and he moved out of the flat that we were sharing. That was me, him and Alex by that point. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was difficult. It was, it was a horrible time because, you know, um, I, I love Charlie and I still do. And I think it's the most criminal criminal thing that he's not one of the world's biggest rock stars because I think he's one of the most talented people I've ever known. But at that time, I hated his guts and wanted to kick him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and so he knew that. So he, he left quite sharpishly and, uh, and things, you know, things took a turn for the worse between us. I mean, I didn't speak to him probably for a couple of years I think and he he would occasionally sort of text me and I was I was too wrapped up in my own ego my own thing I think from my perspective you know I was I was thinking you only get one chance this we've, we've got all this stuff this office on the table and this is what we've been striving for the last couple of years and it's all I could see it all swirling down the shitter so so it was it was quite difficult to take that it was my friend that had put me in that situation. But I think he knew that I could handle that more than his bandmates in the Rumble Strips because he knew that I was going to go on and do another band and he knew that they wouldn't. They didn't have the front man that they needed. And, uh, you know, the track Johnny, Johnny Two Bands really sums up your, your, your feelings does, for that yeah, time. In a way, you know, now looking back on Johnny Two Bands, I'm kind of ashamed of it because... You know, it was so fucking obvious. It wasn't like, it wasn't like the lyrics were, <laughs> there was no subtlety, let's say, in the tone. It, what happened with Johnny Two Bands was, um, just very quickly, I'll shoot this off. Um, me and Alex were, were the only ones left in the band. Neil had had enough. And me and Alex were the only ones left in the band. I wrote this song in about a day. And, uh, I remember having a big argument with, with Eva, my partner, because she was like, that's so obvious you know, I think you need to take a step back from it and just make it a little bit more 
obtuse so that it's not such an, you know, and I was like, no, you know, I, I really wanted to chuck some sand in Charlie's face, you know, and have something that people could shout at. Him. It was pathetic, really. But we recorded this demo. Alex had a mate who could record it. Alex wrote the, the bass line for the demo and, and played drums on a very, on a very patched up kit. And, and, uh, and I laid down the guitar and sang. And the day I came back with the CD, I sent it to John Kennedy and he immediately started playing it. And it became this weird little um, underground-y sort of hit, you know? People started playing it in, in those indie clubs and whatever. And, um, you know, that's what I wanted at the time. Um, but in retrospect, I'm a bit ashamed of it. In fact, I'm very ashamed of it. And, and, the, and I guess I got my just desserts because what happened was when EMI finally came around and decided to sign us, they wanted that as the first single against my wishes and we recorded it with Stephen Street which was one of the worst experiences of mine you know in the whole music whatever mini career that I had that was the, I think that was one of the worst things of working with him it was like he he had all the personality of like a GP in his last year before retirement he hardly said anything and he made that song worse than the original demo and that's what they wanted to record and then we made this super shit video and uh, from that point on, I think my interest in the band started waning. It even led you to get on Top of the Pops, didn't it? Did you perform that on Top of the Pops? <laughs> yeah. What was that like? So, I mean... <laughs> one good on thing top, about that song. <laughs> going on Top of the Pops is exciting, but imagine, like, going on something that is as prestigious as Top of the Pops and having to perform a recording that you don't like of a song that you don't like anymore, yeah. uh, you know, for a nation, national TV audience. Uh, it was, you know, if I'm, um, you know, I'm too busy now, so I'm going to be honest. <laughs> it was awful. I hated it. I hated the experience. I felt like such a sham from doing that. I wanted to go, in my dreams, we were going to go on top of the pops and, you know, blow the crowd away with some sort of punky, sort of snotty performance of a song. And in the end, I was just jumping about to a fucking backing track, mouthing the words to a song that I wasn't interested in anymore and didn't really believe in anymore. So it's weird how, you know, your, your dreams can sometimes turn around and just like kick the shit out of you and you pick yourself up. <laughs> but, but like going on top of the pops was no big victory for me. And I, and I think you can tell if you see the, I mean, I'm sort of jumping about and prancing about, but I think if you catch, if, if it is, I don't know if you can even see the clip, but I think it's fairly clear that I, I'm not quite there. And that was what was quite helpful about being Vincent Vincent, actually, was in a way, you know, when moments like that happened, I could just be Vincent Vincent, put that facade on it. Mm. So were your but, feelings about that song the reason why it wasn't on the album? Is that your yes, fault? Yes, exactly. Um, I wanted the album to be, because I knew, I even knew from the, by the top of the Pots performance, I knew it was over for us. I just knew that we'd, We'd lost our sort of momentum and then we'd been, I was happy to be signed to EMI because I just knew that at least I'd be able to have the money and support I wanted to make an album. But um, at the same time, I just knew that the excitement and the energy from On My Own and Blue Boy, which were two great singles, we, we were just kind of going over old ground. EMI didn't want to release any of the newer material. Like I was really proud of songs that went on to go on the album, like Sins of Love, and Beast were really like, I thought, quite d uh, departures from other songs that I'd written, musically and lyrically. 
and they were more interesting. And I felt like we could have maybe tried to foster a new audience from that point. But um, EMI wanted to do, uh, uh, they just wanted to go over old ground. They kept saying, well, it's only, you know, these, these were tiny releases and now you're going to release it to the, the, the nation, you know, and people are going to love on my own that have never heard it before. I was, I was saying, and we were all saying to them, everybody who needs to have heard on my own has heard it. You know, let's, they, they know us because of that. So let's show them something else. But no, so we ended up just re-releasing that. And then we, so, so yeah, all, all of those kind of, um, all of those releases I felt were going well. But with the album, I felt like, well, I can get all those songs on there. And obviously I wanted On My Own and Blue Boy and, and I'm Alive and songs like that from our past, because that was, that was a huge part of the band. And I wanted the album to be a little collection of, of like, you know, the best songs that I'd written to that point. And with the exception of Pretty Girl, which is still a bit of a stinker, <laughs> I think that we did that. And I think that it's a good album. And, and, you know, when I look back on the, the whole thing, I'm really glad that I got that album, that little collection of songs, because I think it's a really good album. Right. Well, we'll talk more about the album in part two, Mark. And um, we'll also talk about your unlikely career change. But just before we do break there, we should say that you and Charlie did make up uh eventually absolutely yeah i i love charlie to bits he he is and always will be one of my best friends i mean we had a hiatus of a couple of years you know that is mainly down to i think my ego and arrogance and if i'm being honest i probably shouldn't have really put him in that position in the first place we always knew it was going to come to that head but i think what it was was we just we loved being around each other. We felt cooler around each other. and We felt like more indestructible around each other. And I think neither of us wanted that to end, but eventually it had to. So. I'm Mark from Vincent Vincent and the Villains, and you're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, Check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast where we're joined by Mark Ogus, aka lead singer of Vincent Vincent and Villains. Now Mark, tell us about that debut album. Um, turns out to be the Villains only album, of course, but... Um, it came out in 2008, and it was one which gained a lot of love from the critics, although, you know, as you hinted at the end of part one there, perhaps wasn't one that you were wholly happy with, with every song. I mean, maybe I'm just talking too much. I think <laughs> if, if I had to, when I listen to the album now, um, I do flick the track Pretty Girl, just because I think it's quite basic and facile. The thing is that when we used to play that live, it was great with the drum solo. Alex used to hit the shit out of the drum solo and it was just so much fun to perform. So I think we just thought, oh, you've got to put it on. And we released it single stupidly. Um, but that was, I don't think I can take the blame for that. But anyway, um, apart from that, you know, I, I am really happy with that album. I think that it's good. <laughs> and I guess isn't, I was very conscious when making it that um, I wanted it to be something that I would be proud of at this stage and, and much later. I thought, what could be worse than, and especially after all the difficulties we've been through and, and the disappointments of things like that Top of the Pops experience I was talking about, what could be worse than to finally make an album, have it committed to vinyl, which was my dream, having a 12-inch vinyl album of my own music with the artwork that I've made and, you know, have all of these things and not be happy with the music on it. So 
Um, and probably in, in the process, we recorded it at the chapel in Lincoln, and probably in the process, I think, I chose, because we'd had such a bad experience with Stephen Street, I chose the engineer who had produced a lot of our other kind of little singles and demos and stuff. And I think as a result, the album itself is quite straightforward recording. Like there's no bells and whistles on it. It's, um, it's just a band playing. There's no, uh, I don't really know how to describe it, but you know, whatever you think a producer does, I didn't really want that. I thought like, you know, I thought, look at Stephen Street. He's this accomplished producer. He's done all this stuff. And, and I hated working with him. And I just didn't want to have some guy telling me to shake a tambourine over a chorus that I didn't even want to be in there in the first place. That's what I felt the producer was. And in hindsight, maybe it would have been better trying out some different people. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm waffling again, but I'm happy with the album. I think it's a good album. And I always kind of like in the back of my mind, I always hope that, you know, the way that music is listened to now with these tracks that just kind of appear on playlists and people discover them. There's always that kind of chance that one of those songs will like pop out and someone will think, oh, who's that band? And I think if they do that and they listen to the album connected to it, I would hope that they wouldn't be disappointed. No, definitely not. It was a, it was a, a great album. I remember being you know, really excited by it because I've been listening to the band for, by that point, it felt like quite a long time and waiting for this album to come. And it was, uh, yeah. it was really great once it, once it finally was, was out, out there for, for everyone to hear, you know? Yeah, I mean, that was the real pisser about the band was it, it just took so, so long. You know, we got signed by EMI in 2000, early 2006 and we didn't end up releasing the album until, I don't know, it must have been like, yeah, I think it was probably like March or something, 2008. Yeah. And that is just such a long time, especially considering that we'd already been around the singles that we put out that generated the original excitement about us. They'd come out 2004, 2005. So I couldn't blame the audience for moving on and getting bored. You know, I knew that was happening. And we could tell as we moved around the country performing and not really progressing in terms of the venues. I mean, in London, we always had a good following, but I was aware that a lot of those people were just, you know, they'd come back and see us and they'd be getting the same songs. Um, and that was just, yeah, we, we kind of got stuck in a rut, really. You also had um, something else I wanted to touch on was your, your sort of stage presence as well, because the band had a real identity. They seems to take a, a real, um, place a bit of importance on, on the way that you looked, you know, had a really distinct uh, attire on stage. So was that something that the band focused on that you felt was important, the, uh, the well, look of the band? I was, yeah, I was a bit of a despot regarding our image. In fact, when... When Charlie left and um, Tom and Will joined, I think initially Phil and I were like really like two fussy mothers kind of like chucking clothes at the new guys because we didn't really, you know, we wanted to kind of create this coherent image. I, I think it was important to me. I felt like all of the people that I admired really, uh, who were performers, really cared about what they looked like. And I, I, I hated bands that would just wear sort of like raggedy t-shirts and, and just not think about that side of that side of the performance. I, I just felt like, what, what's the point? You know, if you're going to perform, perform. So, so, and, and I guess because writing, writing songs and the music that the, that we were sort of doing, it was like, it was within, there was a certain style and, uh, I don't know, there was kind of, the look was important because there needed to be this extra element that people to 
try and help people understand who were and i know that it might it might have seemed it might have been misconstrued it might have seemed like we just looked like we were trying to look like we were from a certain time or whatever that that wasn't the case and i don't think that's what we were going for but we wanted to look interesting anyway we wanted to have some sort of identity that we felt like a lot of bands were lacking and certainly when we started out that was definitely um, something that a lot of bands were lacking and i think it helped us get ahead of it yeah it makes you stand out definitely um then mark obviously we know that was the only album. So tell us a little bit about what happened with EMI after that and uh, what led to the, to the band splitting up. Um, well, the band, I can't really remember uh, what happened first, whether the band split up first or EMI dumped us first. I think, I actually think, I remember like our last UK tour, we were heading to a gig in Bristol and we'd been booked to play the Thecla, which was this huge, sort of ex warship or whatever that had been turned. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. You've been there? <laughs> yeah. It's a really cool place. And um, up until that point in Bristol, we'd only ever played, I think, Louisiana, which was like this upstairs room in a pub. And um, we'd had some of our best ever gigs there. You know, they were really great, like sweaty upstairs pub room, like raucousy. But it was like a small room. It was like a sort of, you know, must have been capacity a hundred people and um the album had just come out we were doing this tour and thecla is what we've been booked for and then on the journey there the promoter rang our tour manager and, and uh and passed off the news that we hadn't been able to sell enough tickets to do the thecla so we've been downgraded to the louisiana and as much as i loved the louisiana we played there three or four times i just said to the guys um i can't I don't see the point in in doing this and going around the country and playing smaller and smaller places. And I think also at that point, I mean, I, I I had said that my interest had started to wane, you know, from that top of the pops performance and maybe even before then. You know, I, I knew the writing was on the wall, um, but also my confidence had kind of been shot. You know, by that point in two thousand eight, I, I wasn't writing any new songs. I felt like we were treading water. I think. I just wanted to, it's, it's a strange feeling, um, you know, you're, when you're in a band and you, we started it, I, I started Vincent and the Villains in 2003. So five years later in 2008, I'm 28 years old. All of my friends who are not musicians are, you know, their lives are moving forward, their jobs, they're kind of like moving into flats. They're not living in shitty hovels. You know, like for me, it was like, uh, there was a time where reality was everybody lived in some shit stained hovel in East London and you go, Oh, this is the one that you live in. <laughs> this is the one that you live in. And you'd have great times and great parties there. And then that started, people started growing up a bit and you feel stuck. You know, you're going round and round on the same wheel, playing the same venues. And, and yet you see life going on around you, people growing up and moving on. And it, and it becomes the, the intensity in your mind becomes quite suffocating because you just start thinking, Whereas in the beginning, you saw your future, you saw where you're going to play and, and all the accolades that are going to be thrown your way and how exciting it's going to be. And then, and then you get to sort of a certain point of it where you've done some of those things and you're like, oh, this isn't how I foresaw it. You know, and you know that you have to make that decision and it's a really tough decision because you've, you've been, you've made this decision that you're a musician 
and that's who you are and then you have to completely reevaluate you but I, it felt like it was time and and nobody in the van was arguing yeah and how, how do you reflect on it now like if you think back to how you felt at that point how do you reflect on you know that music part of, of your life you know 10-15 years on um well first of all i don't regret a thing i think it was the best possible thing i could have done for that period of my life i think there must be millions and billions of people who dream of doing some of those things that we got to do we got to play at the albert hall you know we got to play some gigs that people would dream of doing and, and but um for me it was just very important i i like to create things or make things and for me it was really important that i had control that i could write these songs that but i guess i sort of in retrospect maybe it was like i did see it as this kind of project or something that i just wanted to see how far i could push it and and, and what would come out of it and i felt like in the process of doing that we I think we, we we made a lot of people have fun <laughs> and uh, and what could be purer than that in terms of like making rock and roll that's really what you want to do is just get on stage or make music that generates fun that that, that creates excitement and there were times that we had that were just some of the best times you know um, but I do think that it's a young man's game and I think you know when it's time when it's your time to go you should go and you should withdraw gracefully. <laughs> I, I think it's, it, it, was a, it was a brilliant thing to have done. And I'm, and I'm so glad to have, you know, the album. And, and also when, I mean, probably about a year or so after the band split up, um, on my own got used in this, in this film, in this movie with Zac Efron. And um, I did a, a, all right out of that. It, it enabled me to sort of start the next uh, chapter of my life so one thing just always leads into another in a kind of very neat way somehow i've i've certainly felt that in my life anyway and nothing is without meaning so you go through all of these experiences and it just feeds into the next thing that you do yeah well, let's get into that because we're doing this podcast we've spoken to musicians who've gone in all sorts of different directions after their bands have split you know some have continued to play and, and try to stay in music some have taken on guess what people might term quite normal office jobs, for instance, but um, you've embarked on quite a different career. Um, so tell us about it. I guess I touched on it earlier, but when, I, when, when the band ended, although it had been my decision, I think I still had quite a tough time coming to terms with that. The, the, you know, what was happening next? What, what, what would I be? Would I still be a musician? I guess I, I wanted to think about something else that I could be as passionate about as I, I am about music. And uh, it really came down to food as, as um, the other thing that's constantly driven me. Like whenever we go on tour, I'd always be looking for, you know, interesting and good places to eat. And I always been, you know, from, from when I was a tiny kid, my parents would always take me to Chinese restaurants. And I, I knew a lot about Chinese food and loved Chinese food. and. There was a period um, around sort of 2011, 2012, where the street food thing was really sort of taking off. And um, my my partner mentioned to me, well, she said, why don't you think about doing something like a Jewish deli? Because I'm Jewish. Um, I grew up in with Jewish food 
Um, and I always felt like I always loved going to America and trying the Jewish delis there and stuff. And I felt like there was nothing like that in in England. And it, and with the street food thing kind of booming, that sort of nascent street food scene, I thought maybe I could jump on that bandwagon and, and try and hawk a few sandwiches and see if it was something that people would like. So I started making pastrami and and um and I got a couple of pitches of Brick Lane and then I got offered a pitch in Mulby Street Market and that kind of really took off and then um Tom Kerridge, the chef, was filming a show down there and his researcher asked if I would mind if they filmed a segment with me because he was doing something about salt beef. And we did that and that got played on TV and, and the popularity of the thing grew and, and um since then a lot of a lot of stuff's happened. We raise some money to get into a restaurant we open a restaurant two years later we close a restaurant <laughs> um, and we've now got three food stalls one in spitalfields market one in victoria market halls and one in in um seven dials market it's called monty's deli by the way so i didn't mention that <laughs> and now we're in the middle of a global pandemic and i don't know which of those is going to open if any but we're we're doing um as a lot of the restaurant businesses have tried to do we've we've moved to a sort of delivery only option where we're selling large joints of meat and part baked bagels which you can finish baking at home and sauerkraut and and so we're we're doing all that from our website at the moment to try and stay afloat and um, we'll see where we are on the other side of this crazy time yeah absolutely very challenging time for in your industry i'm sure at the moment but how has this, this new venture compare with your music days what are the challenges that you've uh, had to face like i said about creating things and making things like I, I i've been very always been very involved in the imagery like i i designed the logo i designed the t-shirts the the signs in all the shops and in, in, in the restaurant when we had that and everything i made them by hand so it, that um interest has always been it's always run concurrently through everything i do is i have to be it has to be have the handmade sort of thing like the album cover for gospel bombs you know i made that in my friend phil who's also our manager i made that in his living room with him just cutting out shapes and then you know following from a photograph we'd taken of a band and making that by hand and then and then that going on to be the cover so I guess it's the creative side that has always interested me, like making the food, having that connection with people. It's been a strange journey. I mean, I I think I'm really lucky in that probably about a year or two into doing the business, um, uh, I a friend, a mutual friend of mine who's also a musician posted this picture of a friend of his making pastrami. And I said, oh, that looks all right, you know, does he want a job? And he ended up working for me and then becoming my partner in Monty's Deli. And we built it together. And, and um, I've been really lucky because he is a, an amazing cook. So when it started out, I was just making pastrami and salt beef and chopped liver and chicken soup. You know, he brought in all these other items that we're now, you know, more almost more famous for, like our bagels and um, our latkes and our sauerkraut and things like that. So, uh, and also he's massively massively more business savvy than i am so he's been hugely instrumental in growing it to to what it is but my my i mean it's impossible to compare them they're different things but i i think it gave me the opportunity to become part of that other life that i've been sort of um that was at the back of my mind or that i was seeing going on around me because now um uh so eva and i've been together for 
15 years now and we just had our second child uh six weeks ago in the oh, peak wow. of congratulations <laughs> thank you and you know i'm sitting here in in my house and uh i'm not in Whitechapel anymore i'm in a much quieter bit of london and and life is completely different i'm 40 years old and it's it's um i think there's a lot of musicians out there from that period who i'm sure you're going to encounter who are still struggling with that question of what next and and you know a lot of people who who have dedicated themselves to this pursuit of music and whatever that leads to at the expense of the rest of their life and it's kind of um i'm i'm glad that i'm not in that in in that boat yeah that's a fascinating story mark because i think like having that creativity there is uh moving from the band you know a band that you're you know very much a part of very much in control of into a business that you can control and design and just focus all your creativity yeah. and energy into uh, sounds like it was the, the perfect marriage for you after the band i think so i mean I, I i always feel a bit embarrassed to sort of say this but i i think that um i am an artist of sorts and that uh creating things is what interests me so whether it's creating a band or creating this business um, and making the food and, and creating what it looks like and what it feels like the experience and the music stuff and that's always the side of it that interests me and, and so i still so it's that's that's where i find the gratification right well mark it's been great chance to you today um just before we let you go we've got three more questions three quick questions for the encore um yeah first, first one yeah first one is i want to know what's the best thing to order at your deli oh <laughs> um, probably the most the most um sought after dish is the is the salt beef rubin so okay. that is um a traditional kind of deli sandwich where it's salt beef um we have this sauce called russian dressing and mustard we, we make our own mustard from seed uh sauerkraut which we ferment ourselves melted cheese and uh between two slices of rye bread and uh, it's a fantastic delicious sandwich we do another one which is called reuben special which is a, a bigger sort of more american style version with loads more meat in it um which is pastrami and salt beef um but yeah there's there's um i mean i don't know if these places are ever going to open but i hope they do and uh, if they do i'll I'll, uh, I'll be sure to email you and invite you down yeah, <laughs> yeah i'm salivating yeah. just uh think yeah same here swing by. <laughs> <laughs> all the evidence is there on the internet so uh, yeah look up monty's deli see what you can yeah, no, it looks great. And uh, yeah, it sounds really good. Uh, so yeah, fingers crossed it all, we all come out the other side of this and things get back to normal. But um, And one, of the, one other side of normality would be live music. So we want you to also see if you can pick out the best gig the band ever did. Is there a gig that stands out in your memory? It's, it's so long ago. I mean, I remember a really, really good one supporting Sons and Daughters at the Concord in Brighton. I remember there, there must have been... 500 people in that room maybe more and when we started playing on my own it just erupted and everybody was singing and that was really exciting and then i also remember some gigs in paris I remember playing this uh club called the la flesh door the golden arrow and playing in this in this stage where there was this huge picture frame we were standing in the middle of and uh i just remember that being really really fun really exciting the crowd really kicking off before I go, I just wanted to say that I, I, it's strange, but I have started making music again as a way of um, helping me not go completely stir crazy during lockdown. All right. And I got this little Bandcamp page, and I wondered whether you could put a link to it at the bottom of whatever you, you know, when you when you when you put this out. 
Definitely, yeah. yeah. It's under the name Ogus Music, so that's O G U S M U S I K. Ogus.bandcamp.com. Ogus.bandcamp. And um, there's two songs on there. One of them is called Stuck in the House, which is a song I did with my daughter. She's nearly six. She'll be six in July. And um, she started writing these words, and I was like, oh, that's, that could be a song. And um, we just started, uh, I started kind of making a track for it, and, and then I got her to sing on it, and it's really, really good. So, um, uh, yeah, if that's any awesome. of you can check that out. And there's another song on there that I wrote called Ramona, which is about her. And, uh, yeah, so um, I just started doing that. I thought maybe this would be a good place to mention it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. We'll go and check it out, and... Uh... Yeah, we'll go and check it out and if, encourage our listeners too as well. Yeah, it'd be great Please to go too. and see. Ogus.bandcamp.com. <laughs> cool. Go and, go and listen to uh, Mark's latest, uh, latest music. Great. Now, Mark, just before we go, um, well, maybe one of these will qualify. We're going to say, uh, as a final question in the encore, yeah, um, what's the song that you're proudest of that you've written? Oh, definitely this song, uh, Stuck in the House, that I did with Ramona. Um, I wonder if I played it now, would you be able to hear it or would that just not work? It's on the, I could just press play on this thing. Give it a go. Let's see if this works. There you go, that's a little taster. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she, she just started writing these things and I was, first of all, I was really blown away by her spelling. <laughs> also, uh, also, I just kind of, I, thought, I was like, oh, that's got a certain sort of rhythm to it. You know, there, there's definitely a song there. And I kind of, I think I did become a little bit pushy parent, forcing her. <laughs> I'm glad we did, because in a way, like, we have this song now, and it's like a, a memento of our time, and this, yeah. this claustrophobic experience. Well, it's been a pleasure to chat to you today, and uh, Remy, like, I hope you enjoyed it too. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a nice um, journey into the past. Yeah, thanks very much for talking to us. It's been uh, really interesting to hear, hear your story. Thanks, guys. We make USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com bundle. USAA. Restrictions apply.